Well, good evening and welcome, my dear listeners, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, broadcasting across the globe. I'm your host, Karen Tate, author of Goddess Calling and editor of Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World. Conversations we need to foster a new normal, a better quality of life for the most of us as we strive to create a world free of oppression, domination, inequality, and war, a world where we value each other and Mother Earth. Well, keeping things upbeat tonight, that little snippet of a song was called uh, Maria in honor of Goddess, and it's by the band from across the pond uh, by the name of Be Optimistic. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Be Optimistic. Well, um, do you know it's a new and super moon tomorrow, Friday, March 20th? And I'll be out at the ocean with some friends doing a little mini Isis Navigatum, or Ploephesia, as it was once called, to honor Isis. You know, it's this time of year, starting as early as the first weekend in March, that in ancient times people came from miles around and joined in processions to the ocean or river to celebrate and honor Isis because it was the beginning of the sailing season. And so much of the people's livelihood depended on trade and good weather and their safety. When we used to do the elaborate Isis Navigatums at the beach here in Los Angeles for more than a decade, well, we'd ask Isis to bless our journey, but it was our journey in the coming year, a contemporary reconstruction of what the ancients did, sort of. So that's what I'll be doing tomorrow with Roy and friends under the super moon. And this is one of the little prayers that um, I'll be saying out there. I invoke the Mistress of Night, Mother of Grace, whose crescent crown is light shining through space, Isis whose chariots through deep thunder clouds roam, bringing forth life from soft sea foam, you whose breath distills in the dew and rain, falling upon streams, mountain, and desert plains. Isis, hear our prayers on this night of the supermoon as we call to you in love, you who art goddess, of all above and all below. So that's just a little bit of it. And uh, maybe if there's time toward the end of the show, I'll share some more of uh, some of the prayers and uh, petitions we'll be doing uh, tomorrow night. So, you know, you uh, find a body of water. Uh, You know, there's got to be one nearby or, for that matter, shoot, what's wrong with your bathtub? Throw some flowers in it, say a prayer to Isis, rattle your sistrum. Yes, indeed, it is the time to shout, Isis, Isis, rah, rah, rah. We are grateful, we are grateful, we are grateful, Divine Mother. Well, tonight uh, I have with us uh, Yeshi Matthews, and we're going to be discussing an interesting topic, Building Modern Matriarchies. And I think it's very timely with all the gender bashing that's going on out there in many communities. Uh, Our conversation will no no doubt be a thoughtful and hopefully insightful one. And as leaders in our communities, I trust our conversations might give others some direction, maybe some inspiration. I don't know if we'll agree on everything, but we will do it respectfully. But first, um, I have a shout-out to Pat. Thanks, Pat, um, for writing in again. I know you're one of a regular listener. Pat emailed in to say she was driving to work and listening to the show. And um, me and my guest, well, we were talking about agnostics and atheists. 
And uh, we were talking about sometimes people get confused between the two, and she said that she's got a great way to uh, remember the difference. And uh, here's part of what she said. She said, um, I was listening to your program this morning and uh, thought that knowing how the words were put together would help keep them in their place, so to speak. Latin words can be broken down to make them tell you who they are, as her mother used to say. Uh, words starting with an A or an AN mean without, whatever follows. So, for example, amnesia means without a memory. So, agnostic is without Gnostic or knowledge, as in Gnosis. Um, the, so, agnostics believe there is something, but they won't commit to exactly what. But A, without theist or deity, as in uh, theology or deity <laughs> study, is without God, Yahweh, or any deity. So it, atheists don't believe at all. So agnostics, well, they're not sure. They're not sure yet. They're still in that gray area. But uh, atheists, well, they've they've decided there's no God. Okay, so I thought that might be uh, helpful and interesting. Um, thank you, Pat. Uh, there's also been a lot of stuff in the Huffington Post regarding women uh, and goddess for Women's History Month. My interviews, for one, uh, I'm not sure if I already talked about it, but you can find my two interviews in the Huffington Post by putting my name in their search box. But but anyway, Pat sent in an article, um, another one, that came across the Internet today uh, in the Huffington Post titled The Ten Most Badass Goddesses of World Mythology. So stay tuned in uh, with me after my interview with Yeshi and I'll go over that, uh, as well as part one of another great article by Trista Hendren. You might remember her. She's been on the show. She's the lady with that beautiful, beautiful Girl God trilogy, and now she also has an anthology out uh, that uh, I believe is probably just about ready for sale. Uh, anyway, the article of hers that I want to share with you, and we'll probably break it down and do it in three parts, it's called Money and the Elephant in the Room. You really won't want to miss it because um, so so many important facts in there, things to consider, things you need to know. Uh, because if we're going to change the world, you need to know why we need to change the world. And that gives you ammunition. And um, just another uh, couple um, uh, more things real quick. Uh, I must say thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who showed up at the Venice Library this past Saturday uh, to launch the maiden voyage of the Joseph Campbell Roundtables that I'm sponsoring there. You know, it was truly amazing. Some women were so inspired, they actually did a video review about the talk and the series outside the library afterwards and loaded it up on YouTube. Uh, you can find it on my Karen Tate Facebook page uh, if you're interested. So thank you, Rachel, who's the head of the librarian, uh, uh, the library there in Venice. Thank you, Rachel, and uh, for your help in getting the roundtable uh, a spot at the library. And thank you to Dr. James Reedfeld for being such an incredibly passionate and inspiring speaker on uh, our beloved goddess Artemis. Uh, thank you to everyone who who came and filled the room. I, I don't think there was an empty chair, quite frankly. Um, and Dr. Reedfeld sold more books in this talk than many of his other talks combined. So just thank 
everyone for um, last Saturday being such an incredible success. So, yes, there is so much uh, to be in gratitude for tonight. Uh, Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, And finally, remember, uh, the big Artemis ritual will be Saturday, March 28th at the Goddess Temple of Orange County. And um, now is the time to book your place on the Tour to Turkey being led by myself and Dr. Reedfeld, May 23rd to June 7th. Um, Yes, he was my guest last week. You can hear that whole wonderful talk on Artemis. Um, And, uh, you know, he was the speaker at the roundtable I was just talking about. So, yes, Artemis is trending in a big way. Just a few weeks ago, Gene Shinoda Bolin was here with me talking about Artemis, the archetype. Uh, But Dr. Riedfeld talked about Artemis, the goddess of ancient and contemporary times. So anyway... Uh, All of that is out there for you to catch uh, from the archives. And uh, and if you're here local, you want to make sure you don't miss that March 28th uh, Artemis ritual. And uh, I've talked about the tour many times. I'm not going to go into all the details again, but I can't stress this enough. We are about ready to close registration. So if you have been on the fence, if you have any questions, Um, You can't delay any longer, okay? You really got to step forward now. All right, so uh, that about does it, and I am going to turn my attention to uh, tonight's wonderful guest, and I will start off by reading her bio to you so you have a sense of who she is and what she does and uh, everything she contributes to the world. So Yeshi serves the divine as an oracle, a ritualist and initiator. She practices and studies tarot, plant medicine and lore, stones and crystals, ritual craft, mythology and storytelling, shamanism, singing and chanting, drumming, tantra and alchemy. Is that all? (laughs) Her store, uh, the Sacred Well, serves the material needs of esoteric practitioners, ecstatic wanderers, and and all those drawn to the mystical arts in the sunny San Francisco Bay Area. She offers hand fasting and wedding services, personal ritual consultations, right livelihood, intuitive coaching, and intuitive tarot readings through her shop and online. She's the author of The Way of the Rabbit blog. She is a priestess in the Oakland Temple of Aphrodite and a host of tea and chanting. Is it Sangha? Is that uh, how it's called? Sangha, yes, thank Sangha. Mm-hmm. And um and Yeshi's website is wayoftherabbit.com. So Yeshi, thank you so much uh for being with me uh on the show tonight. Thank you, Karen. Thank you so much for having me and thank you also for that beautiful prayer to Isis earlier. I just love that. Well, you know, um, I, I we used to do navigatums on the beach every year for about 10 years. And, you know, I honestly think that there's a little part of me that, you know, since I've moved on and I do more solitary work now with the, you know, uh, with writing books and talks and, you know, doing the radio show, it feels more solitary than, you know, herding cats for a big public ritual, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I guess I just feel a little bit guilty that I don't try to do that anymore, but it just became too physically demanding. You know, setting up temple walls out there on the beach and in the sand. And, um, you know, I I guess I just have to accept she called me to do other things. But uh, I hate to miss mentioning the Navigatum because it was 
such an incredible ritual in ancient times, and um, we did wonderful things with it. People used to think we were actually uh, a movie set out there. You know, it would be, it would be <laughs> so, so elaborate. It was, it was a lot of fun. But anyway, so thank you, thank you, thank you for that. And, uh, yeah, we have to remember Isis in the month of March and also in July. July is her birthday. So um, tonight, uh, the topic, Building Modern Matriarchy. So probably a good place to start. Uh, you know, let's just start with the simple. Um, how are you defining matriarchy? Because, you know, we hear there's matrilineal, there's matrifocal, there's, you know, matriarchal. Would, do you think it, it would be good to sort of d- make the distinction first? Yes. Um, when I say the word matriarchy, What I'm talking about is a circular arrangement of power. It is not um, an arrangement of power necessarily where everybody in in the circle is expected to hold up the same amount of responsibility or will wield the same amount of power. For example, we wouldn't have our seven-year-old daughters um, expected to do the work that would be required, it really would require... um, you know, the wisdom of a 55-year-old, but it's a system in which instead of like the pyramid um, or ladder-like hierarchical arrangement of power that we find under patriarchy, in matriarchy we see a circular arrangement of power similar to rings of a tree where the outer the outer circles hold hold up the tensile strength of the entire community and the inner circle is the tenderest part, meaning what needs the most care. And Hmm. the difference that I see between matriarchy and patriarchy is really about what is considered to be the most important um, ring of this tree or the most important tier of the pyramid. And in a patriarchy, we see the top tier of the pyramid in in our in our modern you know world we might call this the one percent wielding the greatest um, authority and the greatest amount of the resources and the greatest amount of the empowerment to create what they want to create and utilizing the labor of all of those who are not in that upper tier to attain their own goals. In a Mm. matriarchal power arrangement where we're like rings of a tree, what's actually at the center and basically consuming the most resources and wielding the most um, power in the circle are the most vulnerable members of the community and making sure that the needs of those vulnerable members are met becomes in each ring out from there the role of those who have greater agency, greater strength, or greater wisdom and experience. So who stands at the center of that matriarchal circle includes, but isn't limited to, children, um, those who have diverse abilities, those who are oppressed for whatever different intersectional reasons, And then those who have increasingly more privilege, either related to their economic station or their um, physical ability or, you know, whatever other factors might come into play that allow them to have this privilege, they hold the outside of the circle and seek to source resources inward. 
so that those who are in that more vulnerable position can eventually grow in their own power, their own empowerment, to become members of outer rings. And so children grow up, they get older, they get Mm -hmm. stronger, they get wiser. Our elders um, might find themselves moving from the outer rings back into the center as physical health uh, deteriorates or other factors come into play where their need for attention is increased. Um, And those who are oppressed are given the resources that they need to begin to move into a position where they can then be one of the providers for someone who's got who's got it worse off than they have. Well, it does, so, that sounds like a sounds like a perfect uh, perfect solution. Um, is is it something that your community has actually been able to, you know, put into practice in in any way, or is it? You know, I mean, we all talk about these, you know, I don't mean this in a bad way. I mean, we talk about how we'd like to change the world in theory, but, you know, patriarchy is so entrenched. It's so, you know, it's really hard to do that. Um, have, have, have you done any of it yet? Yeah, we have. We've done it um, in Come As You Are Coven, which is the matriarchal community that I founded along with a few other sisters here in Northern California and now has grown to be uh, a really large community. We've got over 300 members um, and a a very vibrant, um, what you might say is clergy staff of about 35 people. What we've done is we've managed to create a system in our own community of governance where there are multiple kind of interlocking circles that all have representation in a center circle, and that center circle is charged with adjudicating power and um, uh, distributing resources that come into the community for the needs of the greater community. So, for example, we have in our uh, track of participants a group of people who we call the at-large clergy. These are priestesses and priests who for various different reasons, including physical, diver- physically diverse abilities, age, and um, the status of, for example, being a new parent or having someone in your family who's very sick, these are people who for whatever reason um, would find the rigors of our traditional service very difficult. So what we do is we create circumstances where each of them is able to bring forward the gifts that they have to share in the community, feel safe to do so, and that we spiral around them in our other activities. So if somebody says, well, you know, from that track, well, I'd like to come to this ritual, but it will be difficult for me to walk, Um, it would be difficult for me to dance, then our job, the rest of us, is to create spaces for them to do the things that they can do and want to do and to have that be interwoven as a central part of the ritual um, as opposed to it being something that we kind of create as an aside or that's extra to the ritual. Yeah, and that Mm -hmm. way, you know, people, whether they're ill or whether they're impoverished or whatever the thing that puts them in a position where they, you know, aren't... Um, strong enough to be on the outer ring, they don't feel like maybe they're a drain on the group either. You know, they're fully supported and, um, you know, they're they're interwoven rather than sort of pushed to the, 
um, you know, pushed out, I guess. Right. Right, and their contributions are valued. I mean, that that's the thing is that they perform essential tasks. It's just that they don't perform all the tasks. And I think right. that in a um, patriarchal society where um, those of us who have suffered oppression for various reasons, sex, gender, race, um, economic status, are expected to carry everything in our own lives. We're expected to, you know carry all of the work of our own lives and, and, and often of the lives of many others, including the more privileged, this this reverses that trend and says we will not make the oppressed people carry the bulk of the burden here. Mm-hmm. What we will actually mm-hmm. do is create spaces for the, those who are oppressed or suffering in any way to yeah. have what they need to soar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like uh, what you're doing there is very much in alignment is how I interpret goddess spirituality, too, where, you know, I sort of just sum it up. It's about the we and the us. You know, we take care of each other. We support one another. We nurture one another. We don't cast people aside because they're useless or they're poor or maybe they're the wrong skin color or the wrong gender or whatever, you know, whatever it is that... Um, the dominator society, you know, however they decide that, you know, these people are not the most valued in society, that's kind of just, you know, kind of just, you know, crap thinking. And um, so, yeah, yeah, I I love that. I love that you're doing that. Um, But is it difficult, though? I mean, and, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, I've found in the pagan community that, um, you know, we run into a lot of people, and I'm using pagan as sort of a catch-all term because I don't know mm-hmm. a better word to use. Maybe it's goddess community, maybe it's pagan. Um, but I find that, you know, there there are people that want to come show up and do ritual because they want to be entertained, but, you know, they quickly disappear when, you know, work needs to be done. Or, uh, oh, God, getting pagans to tithe, you just as well pull their teeth out of their head. Um, You know, how have you managed to get around those sorts of uh, problems that, you know, from talking to people, it seems like it's almost everywhere? Well, I do think that in the American coven model, um, what we see is, in fact, a lot of what you're describing. That is that there's usually one high priestess or maybe a high priest and a high priestess who are basically carrying the majority of the work, and then they may or may not have a couple of people in a ring around them who are doing um, you know, some of the work with them. But you're right, there are a lot of people who really just want to have the experience of ritual but not have to do all the 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 you know what what for lack of a better word we might say is grunt work of right. maintaining community. But what we've done in Kaya is that we've actually identified a system whereby um, each year we each of us choose a new track of service. So there's our events service, and that's what puts on all of our events. That makes you know perfect sense. We also have a public service track. And that's for people to go out of Kaya into the wider community and volunteer at places like homeless shelters, hospice, cancer resource centers, or helping people who are needing extra help. We then have the leadership and learning track, which is the group of people who teach the students and create materials for teaching. 
And then we have the education and information track, and this is the group of people who maintain our newsletter, our website, and all of our online social networking, as well as doing writing um, that is designed to inspire the group. Then we have the at-large service track, which, as I mentioned before, is made up of the people for whom traditional service might be impossible, but who still have um, something to offer, and they design a self-designed um, you know, path of service. And in this way, we all move around from place to place over time, and everybody isn't expected to do everything. So some, some of the reason why I think that people want to come and just do ritual is because they're so burned out in other areas of their lives. Maybe they're working full-time and have kids and, you know, maybe have aging parents. I mean, there's a lot of things that can really weigh on us um, in, in terms of how we make volunteer commitments. But then I also know that there are several of us in the community who, you know, it's our joy to make a spreadsheet. It's our joy to line things up in a beautiful document so that everyone can understand it. Um, for some people, it's their joy not to be the person out front, but to be the person behind the scenes making sure the event happened in a quiet way. And part of our model is to I, help people identify what their, their natural preference is. Some people, you know, their natural preference will be to be behind the scenes. And so they might do that for a long time. They can move around into various different roles in Kaya over time and never really be out front. But then maybe one day they decide, okay, listen, you know, I really do want to be out front. So then we might say, okay, now is the time to go out front. Now is the time so, to go learn that skill. So I think it's a matter of kind of educating people that, they don't have to take it all on at once, and I think that is a big block to enthusiastic volunteerism in the pagan community. So, do you? So, um, am I hearing? Um, and, and maybe I, I connected these dots, and it, it's the wrong assumption. And feel free to say so. It, I, that's fine. Um, if someone joins your group, they are they know coming in that they're expected to pull their weight in some fashion in some area. Um, they're not going to be able to just you know come to the rituals, have a good time, and um, you know, when the ritual's over, they're out the door, and you know they aren't, you know, helping in 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 some fashion, either before or after the ritual, or doing something, uh, you know, to help the the circle, the community. All of the dedicated members of our community do exactly that. Now we do have people who are just getting to know us, or who you know aren't on the path of greater commitment to the community, who may just pop in, come to Ritual, pay their $10 for donation, and then leave, and that's it. Um, and, and there are those people, and we value the, those people in our community because they're serving their part too. Um, they give us you know, somebody to enjoy Ritual with. But anybody who has been around for a while and has decided that they want to stick around for a while and maybe even advance in the community has a trajectory of increasing responsibility that happens over time until it's, it levels out at a certain point where then they're just basically moving in those different rings around the center of the tree. Okay. And, you know, I think when people hear matriarchy, they automatically assume that um, everything is run by women. But you just said a moment ago priests. 
So where do men and I think you call them gender-fluid individuals, where do they fit into this? Can they be leaders as well, or do or they, you know, maybe a notch below? Is, is it egalitarian, or what's, what's the structure in terms of gender? This is a really great question. Um, I'm glad to have the opportunity to address it. Um, the, the matriarchal concepts that we govern with are applied to and held by everyone in the community, regardless of gender. So what that means is that as long as you're adhering to these principles of how power moves and how resources are allocated and how um, privilege is distributed to those who have need of it or you know need of greater empowerment, then everybody is a matriarch. From there, we do have men um, who have their own men's circles that operate according to the same principles that the women's circles operate um, by. And we also have, just starting this April, our Rainbow Moon Circle, which is a circle that has been evolved by gender-fluid members of our community, and it's people who, who find themselves at all different places along the spectrum of gender, but not necessarily comfortably in any binary role singly. So everybody has an equal um, access to power within the community because the power within the community is allocated along the lines of adherence to our work plan and principles. And in this way, anybody can be in leadership. However, we, because we're a coven started by women, we do all hold the goddess, the, the goddess in a central position of reference. That is like our one dogma. Is okay. Um, so, so you have women's circles, you have men's circles, you have uh, gender-fluid circles, and I would imagine you have circles where the, everybody is all together and uh, together as well. So, That's right. And, and, and at the front of the room... Uh, at, at any given ritual, it could the person leading the circle, the ritual, the event, whatever it is, could be a man, could be a woman, could be a gender fluid person. Yes, absolutely. Wow, how progressive! I I I think this is the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. Um, and, and I will and I will tell you very honestly, I sat in a meeting just this past Sunday with a group I belong to who is trying to transition to something like this. And um, it hurt my heart dearly that there are still a couple women that can't see the value of this, you know. Um, And, uh, you know, I I guess it's going to take some time, you know, but as as our... you know, as our leader of our group said, you know, she changes everything she touches and everything she touches changes. And the, these ideas that uh, we can be exclusive or that we can be separatist, um, I, don't, I, I don't think that's the way of the goddess. And, you know, I, I've just felt for so long that um, anybody who's been discriminated against or, or been excluded, whether it's because you're a woman whether it's because maybe you're old, maybe it's because you're fat, maybe it's because right. you know your skin is black or your skin is brown or you're a transgender or you're disabled, whatever it is. I mean, patriarchy finds ways to divide us, to make us feel marginalized yes. and devalued. Yes. 
and especially, you know, women, you know, women who are trying to create something of goddess to then turn around and exclude other people. To me, that's such hypocrisy. And um, I've been struggling against it for a really long time. And I really do think, you know, groups are really coming around now. And you make me feel so good hearing what you're you're doing there. Um, I I really do feel good, you know, because I, I, you know, as women, we have been discriminated against. I mean, I've even been discriminated against by other women. And once you feel that, that pain of discrimination, how can you... How can you bring that on another person, especially if we're supposed to be spiritual leaders? What kind of role model is that if we are going to perpetuate pain, perpetuate suffering to another human being because they're different or maybe they they make us feel uncomfortable because they're not like us? How does that make us any better than Christians who are telling, you know, gay people that they're abominations and causing young people to kill themselves, you know? Well, exactly, exactly. Um, if you don't mind me saying so, I I do feel like this model, um, because it is predicated upon everyone being deserving, and this is so important, everyone is deserving of sacred space. Everyone is deserving of sacred space. And so when we have a model that says, you're deserving, but you're not, You're right, that creates a very false system of value that then sets up a whole host of other problems that can really have really detrimental consequences. But when we have a culture of enoughness where everyone is valued, where everyone has room to connect with the sacred, then what ends up happening, at least in our community, is that if people then in smaller groups wish to gather for experience-specific reasons. So if we had a group of transgender women who said, we have a very specific experience that we want to honor in sacred space, there wouldn't be a lot of pushback from our community. If we have a group of women of color or people of color who say, we want to gather in a very specific way that does not include white people at this time, we can say, sure, no problem. Of course, we'll stand outside and hold space for you to have that. Um, and, and even then, if a group of mothers wanted to have a space to gather where they just were celebrating motherhood, you know, I'm not a mother, so it wouldn't really be appropriate for me to be there, but I wouldn't need to feel badly about it because it wasn't an evaluation of my worth or deservingness of sacred space. It would be, oh, well, I understand people want to gather and do their thing. And I think it's really important because the separatists, there are people still in in our goddess community who are separatists. And I've always said about this, you know, it's easy to be a matriarchy when it's all women. It's much harder to be a matriarchy when you're going to be all inclusive. But it is more worthwhile because we actually can't afford to turn away any allies to the goddess. I don't think. You know, Um, I so... I, I so agree with you because you know what, and so we're talking the spiritual realm here, the spiritual circle. But but that by doing that practice 
okay, by being that incredibly inclusive and loving and nurturing of one another and not trying to see difference but seeing oneness, you know, that interconnection we all talk about, but, you know, living is a whole different thing. But when we can actually practice that, you take it out of the spiritual realm and then you put it in the political realm. And, you know, and I've been saying this forever too, you know, if all of the groups that have been divided by wedge issues, but whether it be the mainstream media or religion or whatever it is, if all the oppressed people, the minorities, the women, the exploited workers, you know, the list goes on Mm -hmm. and on, everybody that patriarchy exploits, they would be used to working together instead of, you know, falling victim to this wedge issue thing that patriarchy tends to you know, uh, seeds division amongst us. You know, we could change the world in the blink of an eye because there's more of us than there are the 1%, for heaven's sake, you know. Right. Well, and patriarchy is, is, is predicated upon an illusion of lack. And matriarchy is predicated upon the reality of abundance. There actually is enough for everyone. But patriarchy has us believe because it's a pyramid-shaped system with 1% holding all the resources and lording them over the rest of us. There is this sense of lack. And when we are in a lack-based space, you're right. What ends up happening is that women of color feel like they have to have the horrible choice in any given moment of where their identity is going to have to be brought forward. Is it right now that I'm more the woman? Is it right now more that I'm black or Latina? Is it more now that I'm lesbian? Which is it that's going to be the most important identity for me to wield right now? And that's simply because there has been a, 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 a really uh, an illusion of lack and, and an illusion that there is not enough for right. them to have space to be all of it. And I see this particularly hitting um, lesbian women of color and transgender women of color in our society, but I see it affect all of us. Well, and I'm, you're making me think um, about this too. You know, we hear on the news, well, on certain news, that, you know, redistribution of wealth is a horrible thing. But you know what? I remember, I, I will never forget, I heard Bill Clinton on um uh, David Letterman one day he blew my mind. He was talking about um, he was talking about how we do have enough for all of us if it were just distributed properly. And he also yep. started talking about game theory. And he just as well have been talking about goddess spirituality. Uh, you know, as yes. far as I was concerned, because he said in game theory there are no winners and losers. They're all winners. Everybody goes to yes. the table with the confidence that. They will walk away with something they need. It's not about I'm going to win and you're going to lose. And you know, I, I think, love that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I, I had goosebumps, and and I, I and I think about that. And if if we could just, oh, education, you know, if we could somehow just get away from these ideas of, uh, you know, redistribution is a bad thing or socialism is a bad thing or taking care of each other is a bad thing, you know. It it, it, it just makes me crazy that, like, Christianity, for instance, so many Christians now think, well, if you're poor, you're lazy and it, you're being punished by God. You know, I mean, the stuff right. that people get in their or- heads... <laughs> <laughs> or Christian doctors being allowed to be selective about who they will treat. 
in their in their emergency rooms. And I mean, again, in a matriarchal system, we would we would probably all of us together decide that everybody being healthy is a good thing, and everybody should have access to what they need. And then again, there might even end up being coalitions of doctors who are more in favor of one type of birth control or another coalition of doctors who are in favor of um, abstinence only. You know, we can still have, this is the thing, right? Humanity is kooky with all of our ideas. We are kooky. And there can be all kinds of kooky ideas, like the people who hold the idea that women should not have health care to prevent pregnancy because their job on this earth is to be fertile and multiply. I actually am not as interested in fighting with them about their right to hold what I think is their kooky idea as I am interested in creating a space so that women who don't follow that kooky idea can get what they need. And so in this system, which is proliferative, we could say, all right, we're all into healthcare. We think everybody needs that. And now we're going to put all the resources so that everybody can have what they need for healthcare to that center. And from there, we will be able to organize ourselves. You know, you will definitely, if you need an abortion doctor, know not to go to that hospital or that hospital. But it won't matter as much because maybe right now where you live, that hospital is the only hospital. Right. Mm-hmm. And if that if that's the case, then those are where the redistributions have to happen. Maybe a particular portion of that hospital could be allocated for people who hold that belief, but the whole thing can't because it serves a region. So these are the kinds of decisions that would need to be made, but they wouldn't be made just by a few people with, you know, like our, our Republican lawmakers, right? right. They would be right. made with- instead in a circular distrib- distributive model. Yeah, and I like the way you said, too, you know, and and it sort of falls into alignment with how we've been talking on the show, you know, trying to put our energy into what we're for rather than putting too much energy into what we're against. So the idea of don't fight the women who want to be breeders, let them be breeders if that's what they want to be, but by the same, and I don't mean that disparagingly, I really don't, I mean, you know, the poor women who you know, feel like that that's what they're told and that's what they believe and that's how they're happy, okay. Um, mm-hmm. But the other women should who don't want to do that should have the freedom to do what, in other words, everybody has freedom, you know, instead yeah. of this I- idea. I mean, because Republicans are huge hypocrites because they talk about personal freedom, but it's only personal freedom to do what they want you to do, you know. It's, it's freedom it's not, for the 1%, right? Yes. Freedom yeah. for the one percent, freedom for 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 white men, freedom for rich people, but it's not really freedom for anyone who maybe goes against the grain of what they think is proper, you know. Right. Um, right. So it's not really it's 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 you know it's not really freedom, you know. It's it's right. uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so so all right. So you've you've so examples of matriarchies. I mean, I know. Uh, some people don't realize that there are still matriarchies on on the face of the earth. Um, besides mm-hmm. your your group up there, do you know of any other matriarchies around the globe that are in existence now that maybe you could just you know mention? Yeah, there is one. I mean, there's if you if you type into Google matriarchies, or if you go to suppressedhistories.net, which is Max Dashu's excellent site, she's got um, a whole wonderful section on what she calls, and I like this term very much, mother right cultures. 
I use matriarchy because it's it's something that is in the general zeitgeist. People know what I mean right away. But I actually really like Max's term, mother right cultures, because that includes matriarchy, matrifocal, and matrilineal cultures. Basically, it says these are cultures that acknowledge the sovereignty of women and then arrange themselves around that concept in different ways. So one culture um, is the Mosuo people, and this is um, a, a group of people who live along the um, Tibetan border, and they are... Um, they have something called walking marriages. They do not they do not have like traditional marriages where two people join together and then go live in a house apart from the rest of their family. Rather, women are the primary holders of property and the primary um holders of resources. They live with their extended families. Men also live with their extended families. And if a woman and a man decide that they'd like to get together, he can go visit her at her place and they can have a very, you know, long-term relationship that basically in our culture would look like um, prolonged, permanent dating. But he never gets to take her seat, if you know what I mean. He never mm-hmm. gets to claim her territory. And this is one of the things that when you trace back um, through several different matrilineal, matrifocal, and matriarchal cultures on Earth, there's currently still at least six of them on Earth. Um, but if you trace this, this theme back through many different ones, what you start to see is that often the realm of policy and sorting out how things will be done um, relevant to certain aspects of the group are given to men and property holding and provision for the entire community are given to women. And what you start to see is that this is actually a system in which um, wealth is held by some of the most vulnerable members of the community in check as a check and balance to those who might have aspirations to politics. Now, in some of these cultures, these lines are still pretty stratified. Men are doing government. Women are doing the, you know, taking care of the property. And it can still, from the outside, look like some of the traditional divisions of labor that we might expect to see under a patriarchal system. Um, However, the crucial difference is that there's always that system of checks and balances. Imagine how differently it would be in the United States of America if a man and a woman decided to get married and they had two children, and then in order for them to, you know, move forward with the family, they had to have the woman's permission for any land that they bought, and it was in her name. How much less domestic violence do you think there would be? (laughs) <laughs> how much you know how much less do you think how much less rape do you think there would be if men actually knew that the person who is providing for them is the, is on the other side of their intention right 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 and the fact of the matter is in american culture and if you look at the statistics on single mothers you see that actually this country is held up by the labor of single mothers right so they are actually providing for all of us. They are providing for all of us more than anyone else. And these women who, you know, either single moms who were always single or single moms who are divorced 
are doing the majority of labor of of a certain level that sustains our entire culture. And we just, because of patriarchy, because of that pyramid-shaped model, and because of the illusion of lack, we actually, as a culture, ignore their sovereignty and their power. And I frankly think that we ignore their power at our peril because right now the majority of people in colleges in the U.S. are women. The, the, the largest growing group of women receiving higher education are women of color. This is like you know statistics that I've read in the past few years in various places, and they've stayed pretty strong. So I well, think that... It's important to note, like where, you know, where do we actually get our resources from? Because well, I know and, and Google the, our resources. And well, and this is going to right. tie in really well to the article I'm going to share, or, or uh, that Trista Hendren uh, wrote, "A Money and the Elephant in the Living Room," about what we, the work women do in the world, and especially the work that isn't compensated, and how women really keep the world running. Um, and and so often, you know, it, you know, they're keeping. Uh, they're keeping the world running, uh, doing things that they are never compensated for, and you know, and, and that's why we end up with you know 70% of women retiring in poverty. Um, so it's it, it's it's really a subject that women need to be aware of, and women have to really stop being complicit in their own oppression and start demanding change. And you know, I, I really do predict 20 or 30 years from now, I think things are going to look much different because. Uh, it, it feels like there is a swell gathering, um, you know, whether it whether you look at um, the Super Bowl ads about empowering girls and domestic violence or you look at what, how the NFL was pushed into addressing a domestic violence, you look at how uh, microloans are being given to, in third world countries, not to the husbands but to the wives because, you know, mm-hmm. then it benefits the family, it benefits the community. All of the different things that are changing, like you said, there's more women graduating from college. Uh, fewer women are deciding to have children, too. Um, I mean, there's yes. so much change going on. Um, I, I, I hope, I pray that, you know, 20 or 30 years from now, um, this will be an incredibly different world because women will have changed their position in society. Well, just from, you know, when I was 20 and just beginning to think about doing my graduate work in women's history, which I then did, um, Till now, when I'm, and I'm now 40, I have seen quite an extensive change. It's not enough change to make me really feel at ease, but it is a lot of change. And I, I think you're right. I think we are going through a, a period of sea change around power, around resources, and how we use them, not only money, but natural resources. And I think that the shift to women's models of of power sharing and resource sharing, which are developed by, as I mentioned before, often by single moms who need to look out for each other, those models of power sharing and resource sharing actually, which we see in our examples in the 1970s of like co-ops and we're now seeing in co-housing because housing is so expensive, we can see like we have the solutions we need for our, our planet to be healthier, for our society to be healthier. It's just a matter of choosing to give authority and credence 
to the voices of those who have been marginalized by the very system that they are outwitting at this moment. I mean, right. at this moment, there are single moms doing this and, and collaborating, and there are also, you know, whole families gathering together and living tribally in urban societies because it's the only way they can afford to do it. I mean, we're already hacking this system. Well, you know, that's that's another thing. You know, I've been talking with uh, with friends about doing that sort of very same thing for retirement because so many of us have chosen not to have children. We don't have kids to take care of us. We're all either single or couples or something like that, and we're starting to try to vision, you know, how can we live differently so that we can help each other. And um, there was a on CBS just about two mornings ago, there was a story in Hartford, uh, I think it was Hartford, Connecticut, or maybe it was in Pennsylvania. Now I can't remember, but I want to say Hartford, Connecticut. Nine people um, went in together and bought this incredible house, nine-room house, upscale neighborhood. It was uh, two married couples. One of the married couples had children. Um, there were and there were a few single people. It was nine of them all together, but they all knew one another. They all had a, a vested interest in the house. They all put money in to buy the house. Now the neighbors are trying to kick them out because there's some ordinance that says two people, uh, more than two people, not related, cannot live in these houses. Um, and they ridiculous. I know, and they apparently it's like the destabilization of a tribal family unit. The tribal yeah. family unit is the oldest functional form of societal arrangement on the planet, and they want to break that up. And they only want to break it up for greed's sake. It is purely for the sake of greed. Oh, I, I believe I've you. I've been to you know when I went to Tibet, there are like. Tons of people living, you know, a whole huge family will live in a small house. It is not, you know, unusual. It's not unusual if you go almost anywhere else in the developing world that lots of people will share resources in a small space. But this culture of lack, this patriarchal culture, wants to destabilize the most single most functional unit of family empowerment that we have. Right. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on just a second. You changed the position of your mic or something because you sound oh. a little bit different. Um, if you can oh, shift is back. Oh, better? Yeah, is yes, I think better? So. Yes, yes, okay, yes. Okay, good. Okay, now go, continue what you were saying. Oh, just that, you know, I do think that this is rooted in greed because the single, you know, the, the mom, dad, and 2.5 children living in their own house next door to another house that has mom, dad, 2.5 children, next to another house that has mom, dad, 2.5 children. This model in American culture is actually really um, the antithesis of sustainability. And matriarchal cultures that are family, tribal cultures that are rooted in times when we, when paternity might be uncertain, but maternity was always certain, we know who that baby came out of, even if we don't know who made that baby nine months ago, right, right. there, who put that baby there. Um, we know who that baby came out of. So there's this this um, rooted, ancient kind of functional system that that is being destabilized literally for the sake of sale of, and again, it's all an illusion, the sale of land. Who can own land? 
Why should we be able to own it? Why should we be able to claim more than our share when, again, there's plenty for everyone? And if we just worked it out, we could we could be in the right places that we need to be. And there would be urban centers and there would be rural places. Yeah. But this, this myth is creating that sprawl of suburbia. It's creating prefabricated houses. It's creating the illusion of land ownership. And it's also creating, unfortunately, a tremendous amount of isolation for women and men and and all people of all genders who actually don't want to be alone. Right? Yeah. And so what you just described like breaks my heart. And I have done some work in um, trying to ascertain how to do pagan senior co-housing because I used to work for a senior uh, clinic. I used to be a clinician. And I worked in a clinic that catered to people over the age of 60. And it was the, it was the, one of the worst things about my role was I went into these home visits and it was watching woman after woman after woman trying to hold up the expense and the upkeep of her house when everyone else was gone or had died. And I mm. just would see these houses and they're falling apart and these women who are trying to hold it up or these men who are living alone in little apartments, or, you know, it, just the isolation of it was was depressingly palpable. And I do think, I think your idea is genius, and I think, you know, others have done it, and you could definitely do it. The ideal would be if, there, if you created this community with your friends, and then, you know, on the premises of this community, there would be maybe two or three other apartments that would house um, graduate students, uh, young families, who would, their job would be to do the things that seniors had a hard time doing, carrying mm-hmm. out the garbage, going and getting groceries, doing maintenance around the property. And because they're just younger students or starting out as a family and their resources are maybe not as well, um, you know, kind of together as, as a senior who has had a longer-term career or who has had some kind of success in their life, He's the people who would greatly benefit from the opportunity to be in a good, safe place and right. to help out the seniors who live there. I, I can really see that this would be very functional for baby boomers as well as some of our, like, generation, I don't know what we call them now, double A. <laughs> Did we go back? Did we go, like, X, Y, Z and then double I don't A? Know. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, the people you know, in Horford, uh, apparently they claim, um, I, I have my doubts, but they claim that they didn't want uh, to have, uh, that ordinance came about because they didn't want these huge houses to be used as boarding houses. And, you know, maybe there was some truth to it, but, you know, these were elite neighborhoods, and I couldn't help yeah. but think there was something else going on. It was really about the yeah. haves and the have-nots, you know. Uh, oh, it, it to, is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but, you know, there was also the good side of it was on the flip side of that uh, sad story. Uh, well, the family is going to fight the city ordinance, but the, but um, what the reporter said was other cities have gotten around these sorts of ordinances by redefining what family is. And I think that plays into what we're talking about, too, because just as you said, you know, the statistics on what a family is is changing. I mean, I think a family is the people you, you want around you, the people that you care about, and, the, you know, the people that you want to nurture and who nurtures you, irregardless of bloodline or what everyone looks like, what's like, uh, yeah. or, or their gender or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. It, it's, really, it's really about what's in the heart. 
Um, you know, well, that's not with, exactly right. You know, it's you not know, my, my, the exterior. It's true. My my family of origin is um, comprised of my parents and myself, and I'm their biological child, and then I have an adopted sister and an adopted brother, and so I, I certainly know firsthand what that love is what makes a family. And now I live in an intentional community here in California with um, other members of, of Kaya Coven, and there's among us, my husband and I, and then two single moms and their two children each, another married couple and their child, um, a runaway teenager who then joined us and just stayed, and um, another um, sort of a friend who comes and goes. She doesn't live kind of immediately with us, but she is is still a part of the constellation, the family constellation, and that's our local family. And yeah. And I'm grateful for it because I know the parents of the people who I live with and they've met my parents and I actually think all our parents are watching their 40-something children and feeling kind of relieved that we have each other because right. they worry about us. They don't right. they see the they see the writing on the wall financially. We're all working our our butts off and making it but barely and they they take heart that we've got each other and I think if more of us just did that those ordinances would eventually have to fall. You know, those ordinances so. would have to crumble. Well, and I think they'll have it, to crumble anyway. I think, yeah, I think a lot has a lot is going to have to crumble. Um, so, <laughs> right so on. as as we get to the end of the interview, there's a, a, a two last questions I want to ask you. Um, so, you've been living in a matriarchal community for like maybe a decade now, the one that you founded, and there's been successes and challenges. Um, what what are the challenges you feel comfortable talking about? What's been the most difficult? The most difficult challenge so far that I think that we have faced um, has been what to do when someone acts out of accord with our agreements because the a, a community is only as strong as the agreements that we maintain with one another in our accountability and our shared effort. And when somebody isn't in accord with the agreements, it really sucks to have to be one, the one or one of the ones to go and serve as the quote-unquote police to that person and say, hey, you're not doing your job and we need you to do your job or you're going to have to step back. Um, and that is very difficult because, you know, I, I like I, I, I came into the goddess spirituality community really wanting utopia. You know, I think a lot of us did. And I'm pretty aware now that utopia doesn't exist, you know, at least not in the conventional sense. Um, but... I think that um, that's been the hardest thing is knowing that delicate balance of when to someone you know when to just say okay so and so might just be going through a hard time maybe they'll loop back in and when to say so and so is not doing their job and not holding up the tensile strength of the circle and we're going to need to either ask them to shift position into an area where they pull down greater resources and acknowledge that they have greater needs and promise less or that they'll have to step out entirely if they've done something out completely out of court, like a sexual harassment or something like that. We have a right. zero tolerance policy for obviously anything like that. So, um, you know, that's been the hardest thing to maintain because really what it does is it, it brings up in me what I feel to be the more kind of power over energy that I experience more often in patriarchy of policing. And I don't want to mm -hmm. have to do that. Yeah. Um, 
you know, but that so that's the hardest thing. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think, you know, you talked about utopia and that there is none and and I was naive entering this too and and thought that uh, you know, things could be, um, you know, maybe better than what they are. I mean, and let's face it, you know, we don't have a lot of role models, so we're we're trying to figure it out. And I think one of the things that, that discouraged and disheartened me the most was how cruel women can be to one another. Um, I mean, I see that as a huge challenge, too, you know, that women compete mm-hmm. and don't support one yeah. another. And that, that disturbs me greatly. I mean, um, that ranks up there pretty high for me. Um, is, is that you know, have you had to deal with anything like that, or you know that 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 hasn't um, been at the top of the list? Well, you know, it's it is something that comes up because I think that a lot of us are damaged by our lifelong experiences with patriarchy, and some of the older habits of competition are hard to break. So yes, there have been times where there were wobbles, but because a, a part of our community involves like I said, that kind of stair step into your your greater um, empowerment and authority in the community to be a policymaker um, and to be one of the voices that that creates the the you know the priority list and that evaluates the priorities. A lot of us don't want to jeopardize that, so we tend to really try to check that in ourselves. But there have been wobbles, and women women can be extremely cruel to other women. Um, a, a, I think, a, again, the atmosphere of lack and scarcity can crop up around issues like who's partnered with whom. It can crop up around issues like, the, you know, does she have something that I don't have? And that can be really hard. Um, we are really transparent about working through these things. And, I mean, all the way down to, like, sitting in a circle, a group of us, and saying, I will never, I vow right now that I will never flirt with or try to sleep with your husband. I mean, that's like a very real thing that we yeah. all promise to each other. I yeah, vow right real. now <laughs> yeah. that we are not going to do that here because this, what we have, is more important to me than any passing fancy that I might have in that right. in that realm. And right. so it, it really is about putting that family structure of women's sisterhood as a part of the center of that circle, not as the power over aspect, but as something to be nurtured because from that cleanliness of character with each other, a lot of other good can come. So that's how, I mean, but we do deal with it, sure, you know. Yeah, because I I mean, I, I, I still hold out hope that, you know, of the incredible power of a true sisterhood you know, one where women really looked out for one another, you know, and uh, I, I think that could be such an awesome thing. Um, well, uh, one last question uh, before we wrap. Um, any words for women, uh, I guess, or men uh, seeking to try, to try to create their own matriarchal household or social circles? I mean, uh, do you have anything written that people can, you know, like maybe use as a guideline or... Well, we're, you know, we're working on that exact document and in in time we'll have that ready for the public. For now, I do recommend people go to Max Dashu's Suppressed Histories website and take a look at some of her writings on mother right cultures. Um there are definitely some great books out there that are theoretical about um uh about matriarchy and there's a recent book that came out within the past 2 years and I'm I meant to have it here and I don't but it's um 
it's a book about matriarchal societies all over the earth, and the author. I think it's Heidi Abendroth. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Got it. That's her. These are great resources, and and then my words of kind of I guess you might say inspiration would be for all of us to remember that there was a time for every single person on the planet. There was a time when you lived in a matriarchy. It was the first nine months that you were a being. There was a body that provided everything for you, that nurtured you without expectation, that gave of itself for you, and that if you can, you know, whatever your relationship is with the mother that that raised you, um, just knowing that at that time you were living inside, literally inside the womb of the matriarchy, of all abundance, all that is needed for the sustenance of life, and it was all available to you. If you can just touch that with your heart, touch that with your mind, and know truly that everyone deserves to live inside of that safe environment, that kind of safety, that kind of availability, then you are well on your way to being able to establish a community where you hold those values dear. Mm, that's lovely. Um, I hadn't thought about it like that, but I really like that. Um, so why don't you uh, give us your websites, um, if you would, uh, before we have to say good night? Thank you so much, Karen. I will do. So wayoftherabbit.com, that's the hub of me. That's where you find everything that I do. Um, on that site, you'll find links to the other sites that I host, teaenchanting.com, the sacred well, my store.com, um, the um, Dharma Pagan website, because I practice the Dharma as well as goddess spirituality, they go well, and other, you know, the Temple of Aphrodite, the Order of the Black Madonna, and some of the other projects that I work on. Um, You're not busy you or anything, <laughs> Well, you know, I, Goddess really keeps me running. She's got a real <laughs> lot of work for me to do, and I have a real hard time saying no to her. So, you know, she's a great boss. <laughs> well, and, and she's a wonderful inspiration, isn't she? Yes, she is. She gives a lot of light to my work. It doesn't feel heavy. Well, you know, I have so enjoyed talking to you, and I think it's lovely that we didn't have to agree to disagree on anything. <laughs> I know. I'm so glad. I'm I'm grateful for that, and I so enjoyed this conversation. The next time I'm in your area, I hope we can have dinner. Um, I hope and, so, too. And I really, really love this, and I love your show, and I love what you're doing. You're such a powerful voice for women in the world. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome, and I can just say back at you, and uh, and yeah, most definitely, because I know sometimes you go down to the Goddess Temple. Uh, please let me know next time you're going to be down here, and uh, I'll definitely make a point to, um, you know, so we can have a face to face and and just have a nice, you know, spend some time together. That sounds great. I'll do that. Take care. Uh- Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show and uh, for sharing all the the wonderful insight. Good night. Good night. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, and um, it is time for Joe Carson. And where's Joe Carson? Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. 
I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree is. And I came out of it. This is, this is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, those were some words of wisdom from uh, some of the folks in the wonderful documentary uh, Dancing with Gaia by Joe Carson. Uh, I hope you will check it out. Uh, It is a wonderful resource uh, to help you um, rebuild your connection to nature, to embrace your sacred sexuality, uh, to just, uh, you know, get in touch with uh, the, the oneness, the oneness. Uh, that we are all a part of uh, and uh, sort of rediscover uh, our interconnection, um, that that incredible power that is nature. Uh, you can go to dancingwithgaia.com to find the documentary. They, it, the documentary comes with a 45-page mini-book. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, I want to thank Joe Carson for uh, her dedication and talent to put that together. It is a wonderful resource. Uh, it's one that I think we should all have on our shelves. And you know what? The best thing about it is the DVD and the book is only $20. How can you say no? So dancingwithgaia.com. Thank you, Joe Carson. So um, I promised that I would tell you about the 10 most badass goddesses of world mythology. And thank you, Pat, for sending me uh, the link to this. This was in the Huffington Post. Um, And this was in there for uh, Women's History Month. Uh, They started out uh, talking about uh, polytheism. Might have uh, had a bad rap in the Bible, but it's given rise to some of humanity's most fascinating and enduring narratives. Some ancient pantheons like the Greek and the Norse gods have traditionally been more prominent in the Western imagination. In recent years, these narratives have been incorporated into popular stories like the Thor comic books and the Percy Jackson saga. You know, by the way, Thor is actually going to be a woman this time around. If you haven't heard, you can Google that. Um, But to go on with the article here, uh, but not only do these stories leave out many of the world's most compelling mythologies, they also privilege the accomplishments and powers of male deities over their female counterparts. Well, we sure knew that. We've been talking about uh, uncovering the uh, mythologies of the feminine for quite a while, and I guess... You know, other people are starting to catch on. I guess if we say it enough over and over and over again, it will become uh, the norm. You know, I read somewhere that if you if someone sees something nine times, a commercial or an ad, that's how many times it takes for them to decide to make the purchase. So imagine if you want to change a culture, you have to say it over and over and over again. So anyway, uh, this article celebrates the 10 totally badass goddesses from belief systems all over the world, uh, from the solar deities of ancient Egypt and the Shinto faith to goddesses of the sky and the realms of death. These mythological women are the heroes of their own fascinating stories. So... I'm not going to read their stories, um, but I will mention who the top ten were. Uh, the first was Anat. She is uh, from Semitic mythology. She's uh, 
uh, I always have trouble uh, pronouncing this. She's an ancient Canaanite goddess of love and war. So she is someone that you might want to know if you don't know her myth. Then there is Hel uh, of Norse mythology. <coughs> uh, she's number two. Um, then there was Amaterasu of the Shinto faith. She was the sun goddess. Then there's Tefnut, the lion-headed goddess of ancient uh, Egyptian mythology. Uh, she was the Egyptian goddess of moisture, rain, and dew, certainly something very important in the desert. Then um, in Vietnamese folk faith, uh, they've listed Princess Lei Han. Uh, she was a new one to me. I did not know about her. Um, but uh, she's one of the four immortal divine beings. Uh, worshipped by people of Vietnam's Red River Delta. Then there's Ixtel of uh, uh, of Mayan mythology. We all know her. Um, then uh, we also have uh, Mama Mama Wata. She's African and African diaspora uh, spirituality. Uh, we also have uh, Lovatar. Uh, a goddess who takes many forms and has many names. Uh, she's from a Finnish epic called the Kalevala, uh, so Lovator. Uh, then there's Mazu. She's a Chinese and South Taiwanese um, goddess. And uh, let's see, and I think we close with Tiamat. Uh, well, of course, we know Tiamat from Babylonian mythology. Uh, Tiamat and Marduk had their famous battle, and some say that was uh, uh, a metaphor for uh, matriarchy being um, demonized and destroyed by patriarchy. So anyway, those are some of the most badass goddesses of world mythology, and I most definitely agree. Um so uh, I promised I would share with you um, part of this article from Trista Hendren's blog, The Girl God. Um, Trista Hendren is a wonderful, wonderful woman. Uh, I've interviewed her on the show. I've worked with her. Um, she is one of these women that really supports other women. I can't say enough good, good things about her. Her website is thegirlgod.com. You should really go there if you haven't heard our interview. Look at the wonderful books that she has uh, created there. Uh, and the first one was The Girl God. There's also another one that teaches boys about goddess, and there's another one about Mother Nature. And now she has an anthology that's out, uh, that's just about to come out, or maybe just did come out. I'm actually in it. I contributed to it. Um, but uh, from her blog, The Girl Gods, her latest article is called Money and the Elephant in the Room. And I'm going to read a bit of this, uh, but not all of it, because it's a, it's a little long. Uh, I'll try to break it up into two or three parts. Uh, but I think you'll stay interested. So uh, have a seat, grab a cup of tea, and uh, relax and listen. So here it goes. Uh, Trista, these are Trista's words. Money is usually the realm of men. Churches, also typically the realm of men, have no problem suggesting a 10% tithe. But women who put their heart and soul into feminist work are often, number one, broke, and number two, afraid to ask for money. I've also heard numerous women criticize other successful feminists for making money off of feminism. This has to stop. 
Women in all professions, including those who work for the liberation of women and girls, deserve to earn at least a living wage. And this is her talking. I spent 13 years in the mortgage industry scrutinizing the finances of all sorts of people, so the topic of money does not scare me. Money comes and goes. I know that all too well personally. I've been fairly well off, and I've been dead broke. I've yet to get rich off feminism. I don't know anyone who has. Most of us volunteer our time, full-time, part-time, or all the time, to ensure the world changes for our daughters and granddaughters. No movement can be successful without money. We live in a capitalist society. Capitalism and interest are evil. My years in the mortgage industry and as a single mother cemented that for me. No one in their right mind who understood an amortization schedule would ever refinance their home again, let alone even think of using a credit card unless their life depended on it. That said, we still have to gain a basic understanding of how money works so that we can use it to our advantage. We will always be considered inferior men if we don't bind together and rediscover our power. Since we are behind in nearly every way economically, we must carefully consider the money we do have. Marie-Lena Zuniga wrote a brilliant paper that will stop anyone in their tracks who says feminism is not necessary. It's titled, Women and Poverty. Here are some startling statistics. Number one, it's estimated that the gender wage gap costs the average full-time U.S. woman worker between $700,000 and $2 million over the course of her work life. Number two, the U.N. estimates that globally women's unpaid care is worth up to $11 trillion annually. A woman's time spent as an unpaid caregiver restricts her ability to perform paid work or to migrate to higher paying jobs. Not having a paid job also makes her economically dependent on someone else. Number three, the disparity in employment between single mothers and fathers, the gender wage gap that inevitably affects employed single mothers, and the fact that many single mothers do not receive child support contribute to the high rate of poverty among female-headed households. In 2010, 31.6% of American households headed by single women were poor. In Canada, 51.6% of single mother families live below the poverty line. You know, that was pretty shocking to me. I really expected Canada to be better than the United States. But anyway, I digress. Uh, number four, more than 70% of all elderly persons living in poverty are women. The wage discrimination and caregiving responsibilities inflicted upon women in their earlier years make them more susceptible to poverty in their later years. This susceptibility is exaggerated in developing nations where women typically experience a lifetime of working in the informal economy or at home as an unpaid caregiver. When I set out on my new path after my divorce, I had to cut back my expenses more than 80%. Everything that was not essential had to go. My car, my smartphone, my personal upkeep. The fact is, I could not afford to live my dream while primping the way I had for most of my life. As Ruth Calder Murphy recently wrote, I let myself go. And here's her quote. There's a phrase, an insulting, snide, sneering sort of phrase that tends to be preceded by the word she. 
she's let herself go. She's let herself go usually means that as she's aged, whoever she might be, or as time has gone by, or since the last time we saw her and assessed her appearance, she's somehow become less attractive, less well-kept, less physically acceptable, somehow, and that she really ought to have done more to fight the decline. In my cause, the letting go was radical. I stopped shaving anything, quit dyeing and straightening the hair on my head, stopped wearing makeup most of the time, and quit buying new clothes altogether. All those things are expensive and are mostly female expenses that we are still expected to give up despite the still there and substantial gender pay gap that exists across the globe. In my case, I was it was freeing. I never realized how much time, energy, and money all this upkeep took. As Germaine Greer wrote, If a woman never lets herself go, how will she ever know how far she might have got? If she never takes off her high heel shoes, how will she ever know how far she could walk or how fast she could run? How true. I never would have finished one book. I would still be chained to my ideas of what I needed to have at the expense of working nonstop at a job that I hated in high heel shoes. I would be too drained to do anything creative or fulfilling. As a mortgage broker, I wore expensive suits to uh, to work paired with designer bags and shoes. I spent a great deal of time and money on my hair and makeup. I spent a lot of my financial gains on personal upkeep. I played the part and looked the part of a successful career woman. I made good money as a mortgage broker, but I also spent it, and my divorce drained anything that was left in my 401k. These days, I wear comfortable hand-me-down jeans and sweaters from my best friend and rarely look in the mirror all day. When we give up this idea of our primary importance being based on how we look, we stop buying into all the makeup, hair products, new clothes that cost us thousands of dollars every year. We're talking about a $7 billion a year industry in the United States alone that profits off women feeling bad about themselves. And, you know, I bet, as an aside, I bet that doesn't even include the cosmetic industry that has women with the Botox and the anal bleaching and the implants and the facelifts and everything else we feel we have to do uh, to be beautiful by patriarchal standards. Okay, back to the article. I don't, uh, let's see, Um, I don't spend money on most of that anymore. I spend any extra money I have on supporting women's projects, books and CDs, or reinvesting in my own projects. It's critically important that we support each other spiritually, emotionally, and economically. Just the simple task of buying a feminist book penned by a woman is an investment in yourself, your children, and your grandchildren. It also supports a dream project that empowers other women and enables the dreamer to continue her work. It also gives women more ability to break apart from the systems that support the gender pay gap. When women open their own businesses, they have more flexibility and opportunities for growth and income. That said, I'd also like to look at how our giving to patriarchal religions drains time, money, and resources from us as well. 
When going through my divorce, I started taking my children back to the progressive church that my grandparents attended for more than 30 years. Initially, it was because my grandmother needed a ride to church every Sunday. It was important to her, and I enjoyed spending this time with her near the end of her life. We made a day out of it, going for a long lunch together after the service and then helping wherever she needed it most. I made many friends there in the process, and we kept attending even after my grandmother passed in hopes of providing a strong community for my children to grow up in. However, I fell into a trap of giving more of myself there than I could really afford to. My energy was already at one of its lowest points as a single mom of two young children, and my finances were limited at best. I felt pressured to give money I didn't have, and I felt enormous constraints on my time as I became drafted to the Christian Education Committee and then moderator-elect and the straw boss of a successful Strawberry Blues Festival. While I was happy to do this work at that time, looking back, it was enormously foolish of me, and I resent these demands of my time. My unpaid labor could have been used to get a full-time job that would better support me and my kids. I was not in the position to be a full-time volunteer. It seems to me that the role of a church should be to support single mothers, not drain them further. Later, when the male pastor would go on to verbally abuse several female members of that church, the same man who collected a hefty salary while many of us women slaved away for free as volunteers, few batted an eye. I lost my respect for the entire organization and some of the people inside the church as well. This soon came to include the regional and national headquarters of that same church. No one in a position of power backed the abused women. And as a woman who had given so much to my, of myself to this church, it stung. Monica is Jew, and Barbara Moore posed a searing question near the end of The Great Cosmic Mother. Quote, The burning question remains, why do women continue to give our gifts of spiritual devotion, of impassioned energy, of mental brightness, of profound social concern, to male-dominated and male-defined religious institutions which are based structurally and ideologically on a searing contempt and hatred for women? Why do women continue to give our physical endurance and biological endowment to patriarchal churches which exist ontologically and practically by attempting to dominate and control human female reproduction like a bunch of cattle breeders controlling the fertility of their cattle. What would happen today if all the millions of religiously active women on earth just walked out of their patriarchal churches and just left them flat? Unquote. Or as I like to say, They'll let women on the altar to dust it, but they won't let women on the altar to lead. Okay, I've digressed. I'll go back to the article. Well, that's exactly what I did, says Trista. I sent a resignation letter to the entire church board and left. I began to devote my time and energy to my projects, and I'm proud of the results. When you look at the financials of quite a few of the world's largest religions, they are in stark contrast to how most of the world lives. Almost half the world's population lives on less than $2 a day, and 70% of those people are women. 
it's extraordinarily difficult to reconcile that with the stockpile of goods that many patriarchal religions are sitting on. Recently, Christopher Morrison wrote in the National Post, quote, It is impossible to calculate the wealth of the Roman Catholic Church. In truth, the Church itself could not answer that question, even if it wished to. Its investments in spending are kept secret. Its real estate and art have not been properly evaluated, since the Church would never sell them. There is no doubt, however, that between the Church's priceless art, land, gold, and investments across the globe, it is one of the wealthiest institutions on earth." In a recent Pew poll, uh, a recent Pew poll showed that almost two thirds of the American public, 64%, donated some money to a church, synagogue, or other place of worship. And where is that money going? According to a study from the Evangelical Christian Credit Union, most of it goes to personnel, buildings, and administration expenses, while only one percent goes to local and national benevolence programs. I spent a year looking at the budget of the progressive church I attended, and I'd say this was accurate there, too. Progressive churches don't seem to fare as well economically, but the pastor's salary package was what I could consider generous. This paper is by no means meant to be extensive, but if you look at the Muslim faith, you see similar red flags. Imams usually maintain their own job outside the mosque for their income, but the mosque itself is still a large expense. I'll stick to the religions I practice personally in my critique, but I would guess that there are similar trends in all patriarchal religions. It appears that the conservative Wahhabi sect spends an enormous amount of money on promoting their particular brand of Islam. Quote, as to how much money Saudi officials have spent since the early 70s to promote Wahhabism worldwide, David Ofthauser, a former Treasury Department general counsel, told the Senate committee in June 2004 that estimates went north of $75 billion. The money financed the construction of thousands of mosques, schools, and Islamic centers, the employment of at least 9,000 proselytizers, and the printing of millions of books of religious instruction. Sheik estimated the Islamic Affairs Ministry budget at $530 million annually and said it goes almost entirely to pay the salaries of the more than 50,000 people on the ministry payroll. Ottaway reported, Ottaway reported, that figure does not include the hundreds of millions of dollars in personal contributions made by King Fahd and other senior Saudi princes to the cause of propagating Islam at home and abroad, according to a Saudi analyst who insisted on anonymity because of the sensitivity of the issue. The real total spent annually spreading Islam is between $2 billion and $2.5 billion. I'd be curious to know exactly where this money comes from, but it goes against what I've always believed to be the purpose of zakat in Islam. From what I understood, this form of tithing was only to go to help the poor and those in need. I've always appreciated what I consider to be the transparency of where your donations go within the Muslim faith. However, it's hard to reconcile these figures, even if they are not zakat, which I don't believe they are, with my knowledge of how many women and children in here, in, in the here and now, 
live in absolute poverty. Well, I'm going to stop the article right there for now and do part two next week, and we're going to start off with we have nowhere near that budget to promote feminism. So that's where we're going to pick up next week. So, my dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show tonight. Uh, You know, I really do believe that um, this idea of gender bashing um, men and gender bashing uh, transgenders uh, has has been a sad thing. Um, I think any kind of exclusiveness or discrimination is a painful thing. Uh, You've heard me say myself, you know, it happens... Uh, in women's groups, you know, women against women. So it's not always just a gender thing. We really do have to learn to support one another, empower one another, because I truly believe in my heart of hearts that's how the 99% will take the reins. That's how we create a better society that uh, and gives us all a better quality of life. Um, I'd like to close tonight's show with a quote by Arundhati Roy. Um, She's a, a favorite of mine. She's got some really good stuff, and this one was no exception. And here's what she says. Our strategy should not, our strategy should be not only to confront empire, but to lay siege to it, to deprive it of oxygen, to shame it, to mock it with our art, our music, our literature, our stubbornness, our joy, our brilliance, our sheer relentlessness, and our ability to tell our own stories, stories that are different from the ones we're being brainwashed to believe. And that takes us full circle right back to those ten badass goddesses Because think about it, listeners. If we go back to the pre-patriarchal myths, I'm not talking about the goddess myths where they've demonized the goddesses, where they've marginalized the goddesses, where they've devalued the goddesses. I'm talking about the pre-patriarchal myth where these goddesses are in their full splendor, in their full power. Imagine if you grew up as a guy or a gal and you heard those stories Would you not think different about yourself? Would you not think different about women and women's leadership? Yeah, I think you would. I don't think we would have women getting paid less than men for equal work. I don't think we would have men telling women what they can and can't do with their bodies. I don't think we would be killing girl babies at birth. I don't think there would be female genital mutilation. There wouldn't be domestic violence. I could go on and on and on. I'm sure we wouldn't obliterate all of these things completely, but I'm sure they would be the exception and not the rule. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening again tonight. I know you have many, many choices out there, so you um, your gas in my tank, as I always like to say, because it's true, you keep me going. And um, remember, uh, ISIS this weekend... Um, Isis, who is all things and all things are Isis. The great mother, she of 10,000 names. Remember her this weekend. Say a prayer to her. Look up at the the supermoon tomorrow night. 
uh, and think of Isis because, you know, she is a moon goddess and she's also been depicted with the solar disk at different times in her history. So, my friends, uh, I will say good night for this week, and uh, I will be back with you next week. And uh, we're going to have a juicy little show. Uh, I am going to have with me Jason Miller, and we're going to be talking about his book, Sex, Sorcery, and Spirit The Secrets of Erotic Magic. All right, that about does it for me for tonight. Uh, I love you. Please keep writing me. I love to hear from you. Have a great week, a great weekend. Have a good life. Be in gratitude. Good night.